0: This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by our vision group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas, and experience, and just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast season two. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Andy McMahon, who is the machine learning engineering lead at NatWest Group. Um, so Andy, thank you very much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. really excited to be here. I love the podcast. Oh, it's, uh, that's always nice to hear. So um, as you'll know, then, where we always start is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief intro into their you know background and, and journey up until this point, if uh, if you would.
1: Yep. So um, back in the day, um, I was really into to physics. So studied that university, did a PhD in that, uh, down at Imperial College London. Um, and then during my PhD, um, the programme, the university I was at was really good at encouraging us to think outside academia and try other stuff. So I did some fun stuff down there, like wrote for the, the science magazine, the student science magazine. I was a science consultant for the Discovery Channel. Oh. I volunteered, kind of being a tutor and stuff. So. so I kind of got a feeling of, actually, there's lots of other cool things out there that aren't just sticking in academia. Um, and then at the time, there was like all this, the hype train was going really strong for data science. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, what's this? And, and it was like Harvard Business Review, uh, data scientist, sexiest job of the 21st century. I was like, okay, that sounds that sounds all right. Um, so I kind of taught myself, uh, while finishing up my PhD, just a bit about data science, kind of got some stuff up GitHub. Um, and then we moved back to Glasgow because um, that's where I'm originally from. And I basically, for my first job, I just found a startup I liked, um, and I just messaged them and said, "I think I'm pretty smart. Can you use me? Because it looks like <laughs> you're doing cool stuff." Yeah. We had a great chat, and that was streamed in Glasgow, who who are doing phenomenally well. Actually, they they, they have a a very smart platform for helping with uh, logistics for oil su- oil and gas supermajors, and basically, I would kind of led their their initial data science efforts. So I built their first models, put them into production and stuff. That that was a real baptism of fire for me because I was not trained as a software engineer at all, yeah. and I was in this company with twelve or thirteen other software engineers. So I was like, I had a lot to learn. Uh, but I think that was really good. And I think that set me on a path that I've kind of stayed on where I love the machine learning algorithm piece, but I'm very interested in how you take that build on it and build products from it and actually take things into production. So that then led me into my time at Greco, the the energy and um, distributed energy provider. So they do things like the Olympics, the Ryder Cup, the Rugby World Cup, um, yep. humanitarian disasters, things like that. Uh, just plop these big oil and gas uh, gas and diesel, sorry, generators in the middle of nowhere and power your events or uh, other other tasks. Um, so I led the data science team there for a while, um, carrying on that theme of getting things into production, driving driving direct value, which really excited me. I did that for a few years and then now I've landed in that west where I've been since last January, I think, as their ML engineering lead. So I kind of, I'd be my my role is basically, can I help the company and our data innovation team, and then our wider data oh. analytics team, which is huge—it's about thirteen hundred people, I think. Can I help them understand how we get machine learning into production easier, and then basically understand what ML ops is, <laughs> and and make it make it happen as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, so so that's kind of my journey to Um and I do think, as I say, that early experience. And that first job really set me on this path where it wasn't just the case of building the coolest algorithms that excited me. It was really, how do you take that and build something around it and drive value? So I, th- mm-hmm. I think that's that's going
0: to be the career trajectory for a while, for a while yet. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So you've spoken a lot there and, and normally, as you'll know, Andy, if you listen to the podcast. I ask about the company and what you do, right? But everyone knows who NatWest is, so that'd be a really stupid question. But I guess what I'd be keen to understand is no. NatWest seemed to have this great appetite, you know, to have a data analytics team of 1300 people kind of says enough in itself, <laughs> right? There's obviously appetite from the business and to, and to have people like yourself in that business who are leading and pioneering ML Ops and, and getting that into production, also says something else about the business right so what what maybe do you think differentiates netwest that's probably a better question in terms of just their appetite and you know because yep. you get a lot of businesses that set out on this journey and the, you know they they have these people and then they very quickly vanish right
1: yeah yeah no absolutely so i think i think there's a few things one is kind of a lot of companies will say this but i do i do think digital technology data is really baked into the strategy. So it's it's very much at the forefront of the C-suite's mind. So we style ourselves as a relationship bank for a digital world, which I quite like because it's it's that bringing together of, you've got now West Group, which contains within it, uh, brands that the U- UK consumer really knows, like RBS, which has been around for hundreds of years, right? Um, but at the same time, as, as it says, it's kind of, it's, digital is just baked in from, from the start. So I, th- I think that's the first thing is it's appreciated everywhere that, if we don't constantly innovate, we're we're gonna we're gonna die. And I think for companies and brands that've been around that long, that that recognition is just it's just just baked into the sort of the, the buildings, if you like. Um, the other thing I think that's important is the strategy from people like Zach Anderson, the Chief Data Analytics Officer, for the past years has been really good at placing a focus on the people we hire. Um, and I think recognising that it's not about and we could talk a bit about this later. It's not it's not about picking the right tool set and sort of saying, right, we're going all in on this new fancy tool or it kind of we're going to this cloud or we're going multi-cloud or doing the latest kind of hype-based thing. It's very much people driven. And I think that drive, we've we've had a massive recruitment drive over the past couple of years, and that's made a huge difference. Even in my short time at the bank, I've seen a huge difference in our general level of capability. And then that just feeds into more appetite, I think, because you've got all these people who are very smart, working on really hard problems, but they're all really good at it. And they just agitate for kind of more more resource, more more capabilities. I, th- I think it's kind of a, it's a self-fulfilling cycle there. So I think, I think that's been our kind of a our, our, our really good stroke, I think, is, is playing to the people element and not
0: mm-hmm. thinking of it as a technology problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well I know you're preaching to, to the choir there as I'm as I'm yeah, sure I thought you that, I thought know. Would be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so look, really keen to jump into this, obviously to learn more about MLOps. Before I do, got to ask you about the book, because it always fascinates me when people have decided to do it and actually done it. Um is a different thing. So talk us through that experience. How, how did that come about? How was it? Yeah, so so I
1: I was approached by the publishers, which is Pact Publishing, who do, do a lot of good software books. Um, and they kind of approach people in the community who are technical leaders, hands-on doers, and sort of say, do you want to, do you want to write a book? Um, they approached me about a different book, which I said, okay. And then I think Microsoft or someone said, no, we are going to do that book. And they said, you can't do that anymore. So <laughs> so that's, that, that happened and it kind of went away for a while. And then I started having... This idea in my head of that the gap was very prevalent in a lot of conversations I was having between what machine learning and data science teams traditionally do or can traditionally do and what needs to happen to generate the maximum value, this ML engineering, ML ops piece. And they, I think they came back to me and said, um, any other ideas you've got? And I said, well, I've been chewing this one over. What do you think the appetite's like? And they said, right, that's hitting the nail on the head. That's really, that's a niche bit of the market we need to hit because there's a lot of demand for that. So I said, right, okay. Uh, naively, I just cracked on, came up with like a book proposal. They signed it off, said that's great. Uh, and then I just I just dived into it. And it was a particularly amazing uh amazingly exciting time in my life because my son was born in the September uh, and then I started a, the new job at NatWest in the January and then we started writing, I think, the February in, in anger or or just, just before that, maybe in the January as well. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of, I just, <laughs> it's really fun. Like I was doing things like rocking my son to sleep at night and on my phone sort of typing bits I thought about for for chapters. yeah um So it, it, it was a lot of hard work and we did it in like, I think I did the book in like seven months or something oh. um, and just cracked through. It's quite a short book, but I think there's a lot packed in it. Mm. Um, and the team were really great. I worked with it packed. They were really supportive of the editors and stuff. Um, so I, we just kind of did it. And then I was actually quite proud of what we came up with and what we what we created. Um, I was sort of imagining initially I would just, I would, get, I would get something down and I'd be happy that I got a book. But when it came to the end of it, I was like, no, this does actually capture a lot of, the thoughts i've had over the past few years and a lot of the points i communicate with people in my job yeah so I, I kind of I, I was really proud of it for that and then there's been really good feedback from the community um good feedback on amazon and other places and stuff so, so i have i've been i've been pleasantly surprised um okay. with my first foray as an author. <laughs> um, I, won't, I won't do it for a while i think for the good of my marriage
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean i can only imagine but uh but yeah well look i mean ma- massive congrats on that and i know it's gone down like an absolute storm in the uh in, in the community right as you as you said which is which is great and i guess when we put this out we'll we'll stick the link to your book in the in the comment section and whatnot so people can navigate the way towards it but um so let's jump in then ml ops obviously uh another word buzzword that's out there right uh, amongst the hundreds of others in our industry at the moment but just just give us a very brief overview for anyone that isn't too familiar with what mlops is yep so so i think it's an interesting question right
1: because like you said it's one of those real buzzwords and i don't think anyone's settled on the right definition so i'll give you my view and that hopefully hopefully chimes with a lot of people's views as well so So to me, MLOps is when you take some of the practices and ideas from what was called DevOps. So the idea of breaking down the barrier between software development and post-deployment operations, bringing that together into one way of working, one culture, if you like. And you're just doing that and extending it out from rather than just making traditional software solutions, the solutions you're talking about now have a machine learning component. So at its simplest, it's really, it's it's about understanding that operations is not just a post-deployment consideration. It's something you have to bake in to building of your product all the way through. And then that naturally leads you into things like thinking more from a product mindset earlier, thinking, what does operationalization mean? It means I have to monitor. What does monitoring mean for a machine learning model? It's slightly different from software typically, and we can get into that uh, maybe in a, in a bit more detail, but there's things like that. There's then what's the other components that's specific to ML? Well, you create models, right? So your models need to be treated in a different way from traditional software artifacts. They need to be really severely tracked in a different way. The lineage is a bit more important because if you have a model that starts changing its performance, you will often want to roll back and that's a, that's a common practice in software engineering. But you really need to make sure that the previous thing you had is as good or better. So kind of, I think there's more emphasis on ensuring the lineage of your models uh, and tracking and storing and looking after them is better. Um, And then then there's just the practice of making sure that the people are doing that who are typically data scientists um, and people with an ML algorithm sort of mind also appreciate the software side of the problem. And that's, again, where the ops starts coming in. So I think that's in a nutshell for me. It's DevOps plus ML, but that creates a lot of extra nuances and and, and points to consider in it. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, it's about making products from your machine learning models.
0: Yeah, yeah. So keen to kind of get into this. As you know, this podcast is very, you know, try to drill down into the value component, right? Um, as to why we're doing any of this stuff that we're doing in in the industry. So yep. you know, h- how do we cut through the hype? Because like anything, MLOps is on that trajectory now. We've had things that have come before it, we'll have there'll be certainly things that come after it, yes. right? In terms yep. of the next buzzword, the next thing that organization will try to do. So, how do we cut through all of that? And I guess what constitutes value? You know, h- how do we get to that point where we can say this is now considered value based on what we've done yeah so I think I think it's a really good
1: question and it's the question right because how do you how do you discern from hype and not is does it create value so so I think a lot of the a lot of the for me I always kind of I probably oversimplify this but I think sometimes that's useful (laughs) because it cuts through the hype so it's like it just always comes down to ROI is the is the effort and time and money I'm expending am I getting a good return on that and I think where something like MLOps comes in and starts really pushing up that return is when you ignore the hype, ignore the kind of the fancy world and all the, ignore the books for a second, but then come back to <laughs> it because I wrote one, but <laughs> ignore all the kind of talk about it and just think, what, what are we trying to do? So we're trying to leverage data to drive insights and run predictions and discover things we couldn't before. That sounds valuable in on this one, right? Yes, absolutely. There's lots of problems. But then we we'll try to do it repeatably, scalably, robustly, and again, that just naturally comes up to these questions I mentioned before: How do I monitor this? How do I make sure I can roll back effectively? How do I make sure that I'm understanding if its performance is dropping? How do I know the impact of that performance in terms of value? Um, and I think I think that's that's kind of that's almost it. So that the value comes in because you're going to build more robust products that don't fall down all the time. And I think this this was a major problem a few years ago. It's probably still a problem, right, where there's all these studies saying that 90% of data science projects would fail. So you don't need to be like a financial whiz to know that's not (laughs) value-driven. So like if you've got a portfolio of 10 projects, you're telling me 9 out of 10 of them will fail. So unless you know the 10th one is an absolute big bang, and I think that's what a lot of companies' teams were holding out for before. You're not gonna get your return and you're not kind of gonna justify further investments. So for, for me, it's just all about switching from 90% failure rate to 90% success rate. Once you do that, and if you've got a good diversification in your project portfolio, you're almost guaranteed a good return, right? Um so so there's that, and then there's all the, the classic things that are important, making sure you're solving a genuine business problem and not a fun algorithm problem. That's something that really kind of uh, gets my back up sometimes is <laughs> when we can we can get so excited by, oh, it'd be really cool to do this. You know, like cool is not the same as beneficial to customers, stakeholders, the organization. It's good to do the cool stuff because it might enable more value later. But I think we need to not kind of be led by that. Um, and, and there is a danger of that in this space that's driven by hype and cool tech and, Uh, superstars are are kind of giving really cool talks about the latest and greatest algorithms so I don't know if that answered the question but that's a lot of stuff in my head around
0: it (laughs) no 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 (laughs) it it certainly did I think um the, the the point there around, I think ROI is an interesting one, right, in our space because many people have come on this podcast and openly said it's actually really difficult to put tangible numbers on these things, right? And there's often allocation challenges and debates and debacles and, you know, the, the oh, yeah. whole life cycle of... Buying the tech, when does that cost fall off the PL? And when, you know, how long is it? How long are you baking it? There's so many variables to this, right? But I guess you spoke earlier about the kind of making products. This is, you know, that having that product way of thinking, basically, which I've seen a big turn in the market with businesses that are starting to do this are almost able to demonstrate and pinpoint you know i'm not saying to the penny or to the pound but ultimately a lot more accurately than they yep. were before by doing it on a product base is yep. does that play into this for you with no, the I, whole products we're thinking a hundred percent i think um
1: because it, it changes it changes the mindset and it it, it focuses things in a laser like way i think as soon as you think i'm making a product that's going to be going to be challenged by customers and users and that those customers could be internal so a lot of projects i work on we sort of talk about customers but we mean our our colleagues right who are using a certain solution
0: yeah
1: but you need to think of them as customers and think right if i'm a customer and i kind of get uh you know the latest smartphone and it's crap i'm not going to i'm going to complain i'm going to get my money back we should we should think like that and i think by being a product you often focus what you're trying to do so in the early days of data science teams, there was obviously a lot of building of dashboards. And these are all useful activities that are needed, right? But there's like building a dashboard, PowerPoints, presentations to inform decisions. And it becomes extremely difficult in that scenario to say, right, because of my analysis, the CEO went this strategic direction or we bought this tool. Because you're one of many data points and inputs, right? Uh, you can say, right, we. We helped, but then when you get to the PL calculation and you argue with finance, <laughs> how much do we attribute to us? You're like, oh, really? It was half of us, or it's very hard to do that. Whereas if you're thinking more of a product mindset and you think, right, I'm building, just given an example off the top of my head, I'm building an API that calculates the percentage or probability of likelihood of fraud on a specific transaction. That's so much more specific, right? So I can start saying. How many calls did I make to that API last month? How many of them were actually fraud? What's the average value of a fraudulent transaction, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that it's kind of, again, I'm maybe oversimplifying, but I think just having a laser-like focus to make a product helps with all those calculations It kind of flows out of it because you're not you're not operating in that fuzzy, fuzzy space, I think. Um, again, all those things are valuable and you should still do them. Um, but, but I do think thinking in terms of products does help with that. And then to the point about challenge from customers, you're going to be more concerned about making the product work every day, all the time, because you know as soon as it stops working, you're going to get shouted at that, and that value is going to drop off a cliff. So I think that helps push up the value as well.
0: Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. That makes, uh, that makes sense. I mean, I think it is ironic, isn't it? The amount of conversations we've had across the industry around where data analytics teams should sit, where data science teams should sit, what's the right way? Is it, you know, is it a centralized team? Is it a fragmented team? And, you know, after what seems like hundreds of years of conversation, <laughs> we, we we then come back and land on this point of actually, if we just build products, then, you know, it's really quite simple to, <laughs> to, to kind of demonstrate ROI when it's a, a lot more complex elsewhere. So no, that makes perfect sense. So look, one thing that i always try to kind of uncover a little bit more is who is this for like at what stage of the journey does this become a valid option right because i think um as you again you'll probably know from our correspondence and seeing my stuff on linkedin i think there's been a lot of and the hype has driven this a lot right you know in terms of businesses style on this journey they hear everyone talking about, about data science or MLOps or data mesh or whatever the case may be and they jump into that as the first forte and inevitably it it fails right so at what (laughs) point at what point in the journey is a business ready for MLOps is that something that can be done early on or does it need to be you know do they need to be a certain size team certain amount of data Mm -hmm. what's what's Mm -hmm. the consideration for for that yeah really really good question I think I think it's a bit easier to
1: answer if you'd asked me when should we start doing data science. I would have probably ran for the hills because I think it was tough. <laughs> yeah. I think when when we start doing MLOps is uh, almost as soon as you're doing data science. <laughs> so so it's a it's a bit it's a bit easier to know when that one is. I don't I don't divorce it in my head that much, and the reason I don't is because I wouldn't divorce the use of technology and good software development. It's kind of how I think about it in my head. Um, and I'm going to say that right on bias. I've, I've wrote a book in MLOps, so I think it's the most important thing in the world. But I do think it kind of it is similar in the sense of MLOps doesn't have to be the onboarding of uh, sort of a, a solution that's 10, dollars $10, per license, per year, per person, etc. MLOps to me is really building in best practice. And you can do that with lots of open source tooling, and you can do that with kind of just sensible common sense thinking so if you are building models in your organization you need to start doing some of these MLOps practices and the MLOps practices in particular that are important early on to adopt are experiment tracking and and model registry practices as they're kind of called in different solutions so what I mean by that is people who are data scientists will be having a great time running their experiments in their Jupyter notebooks or in whatever other tool they're using, their R their et cetera. And then coming up with a result, sticking it in a PowerPoint, or as we said, it goes into a product. But but you really need to be tracking those experiments and understanding how have your how have your different model runs perform through time, essentially. And then that, w- that just starts raising interesting questions, like if you're getting kind of good data fed in, so I'd say that's a prerequisite, getting good data fed in that's reasonably matching up what you'll see in production, you can start already testing the waters in terms of, right, should I retrain this every week or every month or every six months and just seeing what that looks like? And that starts getting your view of that operations piece, which then means when you get there and you get to the stage of saying, right, I want to deploy or build that product, you're just so much further along. And then it means that that value is going to come quicker. So... So I do, I do kind of think it's like, it, it's when you're doing data science, you should start thinking, right, what's, what is this going to look like as a solution? Um, if you don't have any data, you can't do data science. You can't do ML That's that's probably a
0: prerequisite. Oh, you can't um, believe me.
1: Oh, you can <laughs> oh, <right>. yeah, on <laughs> paper or PowerPoint. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. yeah there's, there's, there's lots of companies out there that are trying to do data science without, uh, I having... mean, yeah,
1: so it's like, it's like that thing where it's artificial intelligence if it's in PowerPoint or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I think, I think there's that, but it's a bit, a big push in all my chats with people is to sort of get rid of this black magic label of MLOps and data science, but that's kind of went away now, I think. Um, it's not that hard it's not it's not like a it's not like a real magic trick it's just some common sense practices that that should be fed in and again back to the software analogy like you wouldn't say i'm going to start software engineering but i'm not going to use version control yet to my mind that's just doesn't make sense right so so it's kind of like that um just like you should be tracking your experiments looking after where your models are storing them and a lot of places do they'll do these practices but they'll not notice they're doing it and mm-hmm. The point is just having a conscious effort to think about it and think right, is this really the best way I'm doing it? Because I, I remember when I was more a hands-on data scientist, we'd be doing retraining and stuff, and you'd build your own hacky ways of storing the models in different places and tracking the lineage and things. That was basically MLOps. It was it wasn't consistent and stuff because you weren't making a conscious effort about it. But I think if if you if you do that, you'll you'll see a big improvement
0: in, in value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you touched upon there obviously and spoke in depth about experimentation, right? It, it is, does that underpin success for MLOps? Does there be a, need to be a large, you know, proportion of time dedicated to experimentation? I think
1: I think there does for your kind of so your M, I talk about this a bit in the book. For me, any ML project is going to have four. At least four, but I kind of—I think about it as four uh, phases, if you like. So the first one is really discovering the business problem, and that—that that sometimes is overlooked. I think some or is underbaked, really. I think sometimes we think we've got the business problem, but we don't. And again, this thinking as a product so might help direct that. We discover what the business problem is, and you start kind of really understanding that. You talk to your customer, your stakeholder a lot. You get a view from the people you're going to impact as customers. What their day-to-day life is like and how you can improve it. You then build a proof of concept, and that's where that experimentation piece comes in and is very, very important. So can you solve this in theory? Because and that that's something that's quite interesting in the ML space that's different from traditional software, right? You don't have to answer the question, can I build a web page in theory? <laughs> but you have to answer the question, can I build a fraud detection model in theory on this data? Mm. So I think that's what POC is about. Then you move on to development, and that's where you move more into, rather than experiment tracking, kind of what we call more model registry and monitoring practices. So you start thinking, am I making sure that I tag, and a lot of MLOps tools have this, but can I tag the models as development ones or the ones that I think are more have better metrics, likely have better performance, et cetera. And you develop all the surrounding code and the surrounding infrastructure in that phase as well. And that's an important part of MLOps, as well as thinking, how, how is this going to run every day? <laughs> like, am I hosting it on AWS? Or am I
0: going to am I going to make it run on Kubernetes? Or am I going to make it run in, in whatever? That's an interesting that was- point though. though. Sorry to, to jump in, Andy, but going back yeah. to the question I asked previously about when does it become a valid option? I think many businesses kind of run headfirst into these ideas or concepts or we want to do this, we want to do that. And they kind of start and then they go, oh, actually, to so your point there. We actually need to host this somewhere. Yeah, oh, no, exactly. not thought, I've not thought about that. Okay, so what does that what does that look like? Oh, it looks like this tool or this tech, and that costs this much money. And it's like, oh, okay. And, you know, very quickly, these yeah. things can start to unravel, right? If it's not being properly thought through yeah, about and if why you they're th- doing if you,
1: it. Yeah, and if you kind of if you think you need to do the latest, coolest, greatest thing, because because so, sometimes it could be like. <sighs> I want to say run your laptop, that's not going to work, but you could <laughs> run on a kind of standalone server somewhere, right? The, cheap, the cheapest chips option to get you started. And I'm a huge believer in bootstrapping. To your point earlier about when do you start, if you start early as possible and fail and learn from that. And then when you start generating the value, you can sort of reinvest it and you build the trust, you build the capability, you keep going and going. But you get to that stage, yeah, you're right. So in your first project, if you can do that earlier, you start asking that question earlier, which means you make some choices earlier. And they don't need to be like, we're going full-blown in AWS spending a million a quarter. It could be, you're, like I say, you just think, right, what is, I go on DigitalOcean and I get the cheapest server I can, <laughs> and I host it using the simplest method I can, that I think will work. And then the final bit for me is deployment, and that just feeds into that. And when you deploy, you're not just saying, Right, what metrics am I monitoring for my model and what 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 is good behavior of the model look like? You're also saying how to operationalize that. So am I running another pipeline that goes and takes the results from the model and takes the feed data and sticks it together and runs some analysis? Okay, right. Then I need to think how am I getting that data and that data? Is there a time lag difference? You start realizing in most cases you don't get you don't get direct feedback. So a lot of data scientists or some data scientists might run experiments. And say, right, ah, you can see the performance is going to be like this. But then, if you get to that kind of real cold face, you start saying, ah, but I'm not going to see that for thirty days. <laughs> so yeah. that's the kind of that's where reality hits the road a bit, and you start saying, does that affect the decisions I'm going to make? Like, if I'm doing a if I'm doing a fraud detection or some other model that's really business critical, and I won't have the feedback for thirty days, I'm actually going to make things worse. And then you kind of you can you can stop yourself before you, you do something silly. Um and then that's then that's it. Kind of you you deploy it, you hopefully save everybody a million quid and you go home <laughs> or not in
0: yeah. most cases. Yeah, nice. So look what, what does what does good look like then? I guess how do you know when you're doing this well? Yeah. So don't think you should reinvent the wheel. Um so I
1: mentioned earlier that. MLOps kind of grows out of DevOps, and DevOps have has quite a mature view of what good looks like, and so the one one set of metrics that I really like are DORA, the DORA metrics. So this is, um, I had to write them down because I always forget the exact word. <laughs> Deployment frequency. So how often are you deploying your solution into production? And I think in an MLOps hat, you could think, right, I could be def- deploying the the code that hosts the model and runs everything, but I could also be deploying a new model update. So just understanding how frequently you're doing that. If you can get that down to as frequently as it needs to be, by which I mean, you shouldn't be just deploying a model every day because you can. But if you're doing it in a way that you think, actually, I'm doing it as often as I need to based on changes in the data, et cetera, I think that's, that's a really good place to be. Lead time for changes is the next Dora metric. So if there's a requirement for a new feature, an augmentation, a change, how long does it take you to go through that process of changing the product with that new functionality? If you're finding that that's taken months and months, you've got a broken process. And that, I think, is just important anyway, right? Um, But it also means if you're getting that down, that time down and down, it means you've really nailed not just the process flow, but you've nailed kind of what, what the, the really low-level processes are. So that stuff I mentioned before, I'm getting the data here, I'm joining it there, et cetera. If your lead time for a change is quite small, it means that it's very clear to everybody working on the project what each component does and how everything flows together. And that's that's a good point of systems design, I think. Mean time to recover. So if you have an issue, how long does it take for your product to be back up and running? And I think that, that can bleed into much wider questions about um, maybe the previous one as well your, your governance framework so financial services with, with a lot of regulation and governance we need to follow which is absolutely correct so that might be quite different from you know a punchy startup in someone's bedroom um, but I think the meantime time you recover is quite an interesting one so in software that would be you know there's, there's been an issue or, or servers went down etc with an ML ops hat you've got all that plus my model started spinning out garbage <laughs> or my performance is absolutely tanked. So What's your main time to recover from that and get back to within appetite? And again, if you see that going down and down, you're you you've you've got the process down, I think, and your team understand the architecture and where things go. Uh, and then change failure rate. So how how frequently or how often are proposed changes to what you need to do to keep the thing running failing? And again, that could be models. So, how often have I tried pushing a new model and it broke? Or how often have I um, went to extend the product to to perform some sort of other inference and actually that failed? And I think I think those those four right. There's there's plenty more you could write down. Um, and sometimes I do that. I try and think, what are these metrics we should be tracking in the organisation? But I, th- I think if you stick to something based around these four, you're not going to be far off seeing what good looks like. And, and again, the good thing is you're not reinventing the wheel. You're leveraging a lot of really hard-won experience from the software engineering world. So you're not sort of saying, right, how do I create a new theory of MLOps? You're just saying, this isn't too far from software. There's some nuances, like I mentioned, but, but I think we could use this as a baseline. And if you start seeing those metrics tracking the right way, you will then, to our discussion earlier, see the value because you'll be getting changes in faster. Things will be working more often. You'll be able to scale and grow the solution a lot more to have better coverage. And that has to drive positive ROI changes, right? Mm. So let's
0: see yeah, I'd say that in a nutshell. Nice. So I guess what 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 can some of the, the kind of challenges or obstacles be then? I guess what, you know, there are companies out there that will be doing this, right? And they're probably not doing it right or as well as they... Could, For sure, right. So, what's preventing companies that are maybe struggling with this from from kind of you know doing it as well as as they could or should be?
1: Yeah. So, I, so I think I've kind of mentioned this in the chat a little bit already. I think I think focusing too much on tools is a is a big thing just now. I think there's a real danger of analysis paralysis because so many tools out there, open source, enterprise high premium everything right and they propose to do so many different bits of this problem for you that it'd be very easy to get kind of caught up in that spend so much money and then be like actually <laughs> we never got the basics right first so so i think that can be that can be a problem uh, and then that feeds into things like you're not maybe investing the time effort uh, investing in the people enough to focus on things like good architecture and systems design. You're just thinking, oh, I've got this new tool, that'll do it, silver bullet thinking, which is which has been a thing in data science for a long time, right? But mm-hmm. it can extend to the systems around it. So I, th- I think that's a big one for me. Uh, and there's a real danger that you just, you pick the shiniest new tool, you think that'll do it, and then you get really disappointed <laughs> because you don't generate the value and you've spent a lot of money um, and everybody's <laughs> unhappy. The the other one, which I think is a really big misconception about all of this, is that it's something to do at the end. So, in a project, there's a danger I think of thinking that, okay, I'll build the model and build some code around it, and then that's good. Uh, it's it's running, but but you've but then you're like, oh, now we'll do ML ops. <laughs> it's it's nearly in production or it's in production, and by that point, it's too late, in my opinion, because. You've not thought, you won't have thought kind of far enough in advance about all these things I was mentioning. So how am I tracking the model? How am I monitoring the performance? What's the related software infrastructure, et cetera, issues that could impact these things as well? If you only think about that at the end, you're going to like double the length of your project easily, or you're going to really do a rush job and not build a robust, scalable product. And then the performance is going to tank, the ROI is not going to be there. So I think, I think there's a real danger of that. Um, and that, that then feeds into some things around ownership, which we can maybe talk about, like, where, where does it sit, which team, et cetera. If you think it's an after thing, you fall into the old way of doing things where even development and operations were separate. So you just kick over the fence. their problem now. If it fails, that's all right, I did map it. And that, that doesn't drive value for the organization, right? That doesn't That doesn't help people. That just
0: creates lots of bad solutions. Mm-hmm. So I, think, I think that's a huge danger. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go there then. Where where should it be sitting within a data and analytics team, yeah. in your opinion? So I think I think you mentioned as well earlier about just where
1: data teams sit, and I think mm. there's there's definitely benefit in having data teams as close to lines of business as possible because they get really really clued up on. What are the actual problems? And they're just Im- embedded in that. So, so unlike the bank, for example, we've got lots of different lines of business across retail banking, commercial banking, private banking, wealth management, et cetera. I think it's really, and we operate a hub and spoke model, which I think works really well so that the spokes have this real in-depth knowledge, and then they can bring their data capability in there. So I, th- I think because they are then building ML models, et cetera, like I said before, they should be considering these MLOps practices. Uh, and then it's sometimes good to have a hub that's maybe about what's what's the definition of these good practices, what are the metrics you should be tracking, and filtering that out because they've maybe got the space capacity to innovate on that. So I think that works quite well um, at the bank and and in other organisations I've known about or have, I've worked in. Um, and I think I think the the one caveat to all this. So I'm basically saying near the lines of business and these spoke teams as much as possible. The caveat to that is. It can be good to keep some things centralized, even in a fully federated MLOps type world. And one, for example, would be capability building. So for example, if you're building out the MLOps platform or the ML platform that's going to be used by these teams, I think it makes sense for that activity to be quite centralized because that might require expertise that's quite different from the daily BAU, build a model, wrap it up, stick it in production. And once you've built that capability, they build a model, wrap it up, stick it in production. becomes easier for these folks, and they can focus more on value add because they they can focus more on translating the business problem to a data problem. Whereas you've as this as the central sort of team, that centralised team, I've given them the capability. You said, "Here's how the tools stick together," or "Here's what the processes look like." You go do that. Um, so I think I think that kind of can work really well, and that balances between being as near the coalface, face the actual problem as much as possible versus kind of basically having the space to innovate and create create that 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 capability I
0: think mm. is there in your opinion any difference between ml ops and engineering teams and data science teams or are they one and the same thing because i mean look Job titles in our industry are so undefined, and it depends what organization <laughs> yeah. you look yeah. at, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got a different view and opinion, and calls yeah. the same thing a different name, or vice versa, and etc. Yeah. etc. Cetera, et cetera. But you know, I'm sure there's data leaders looking at this, thinking, mm-hmm. "Well, this could be a great solution for our business," but ugh, does that mean I have to create a new ML ops team? You know, so is, yeah, is yeah. this kind of baked into to a traditional data science team, or is it kind of separate, or how? how what's your I view think- on that?
1: Yeah, I think I think harking back to the beginning when we were talking about the definition, the the whole point of DevOps coming around as a thing, and then to my mind, what MLops should be doing is breaking down barriers between teams to the point where they are all the same. And I think I think there is there is the tendency sometimes to like like you said, hide behind the fact, oh, that's a new role I need to create that's that's a pain or this is a totally new thing. It's not. <laughs> it's really not. I think. Data science, engineering, MLops—it's really just how do you how do you take the data science and build stuff out of it? And and what's important there is you could have data scientists in your organisation already that have those skills and knowledge and that interest. Just scale them up, give them the capabilities, give them the room to to do it, but give them kind of leadership and direction as to what best practice is, and, and they'll go do it. So to my mind, you could have a team of data scientists. But they do MLOps better than anybody who says they're an ML ops engineer. Hmm. And I think getting as close to the engineering teams and the engineering teams and data scientist teams merging as much as possible makes this naturally happen. It just means that sort of naturally, those questions we mentioned earlier, where are we hosting this? What does it mean if a server goes down? Just kind of blends into the solution. So my big I'm a big believer that we don't it's important to have these job titles to understand uh kind of Bucket chemistry broad level, broad strokes level, where people's strengths lie. But the key thing is, at the end of the day, it's about getting it done, getting the solution in place. So, so it's just about how do you blend a team to create those those right things. And it could be they're all called data scientists, but ones like the statistics expert, and ones actually i more into the hard coding. Or it could be they're all called software engineers, but actually they can all build ML models or something. I don't. i kind of like it's more about. Do you have the capability in that team? And that's where people leaders really need to take a hard look at the organization and think, can we make that blend work? Um, and if not, do we need to recruit new talent? But it's less about what it's called, but what,
0: what do you actually need? I think. Yeah, yep. absolutely. You've spoken there a lot throughout this about you know deployment and production, right? And I know obviously you go back several years, and as you mentioned earlier, there's all these quotes that you see and hear of about data science projects and 90% of them failing, they're not you know, can't get them into production, can't get them working, can't get them adding value. Um talk us through that whole production piece. What why do you think that is and, and has that kind of has that got better over the last few years? I, I think it has in, in my eyes. But no, I, I, I think
1: it, I think it definitely has. I think I think we're close to in general switching that ninety percent. Some organisations aren't. Some will be. You know, some are more advanced, some less advanced. But I, th- I think there is. It's just because we appreciated the problem, we invested a lot of time hiring these really smart people. As we said before, they were building the models, but they weren't getting out into the world to to make value. So I think I think I think to that point about blended teams, there was just there was just a kind of shape missing in that jigsaw mm. puzzle, um, and that that was the piece that just covers all the points we'd mentioned around. The software, the infrastructure, the hosting, um, and I, I think I think that has been appreciated more and more. So, so one one example, just off the top of my head, that that I kind of harp on about a lot is the, the concept of software environments. So, the whole idea of having right there's a development environment, a pre-production environment, and a production environment, and the idea as you develop in the develop environment. <laughs> You test and kind of run it as if it's in production in the pre-prod environment to do really detailed testing, user acceptance testing, all that integration testing, and then you push it in production. Even that concept will be alien to quite a lot of kind of pure data scientists, right? Um, at least a few years ago. And I think that sort of thing now is becoming like it's becoming actually that's a bit more kind of standard piece of knowledge. And even things like again a few years ago, it might have been a bit rarer to. Have a data scientist or someone working in ML doing version control and kind of working to that. And I think that's it's been seen as actually you can't work like that. So I do I do think it is it is migrating, but there's that element of just general education and, and thinking what's the actual problem that I'm going to come up against in this project going to be, which is often the the bit where the value is generated, right? Where you directly interact with someone. Um I think I think as well. I know I kind of poo-poo tooling a lot, but I do think cloud in general has helped democratize a lot of this because you can you can you can do things that a few years ago you would need like a crack team of really experienced sysadmins and infrastructure people and networking guys and you know all these mm-hmm. people. And the cloud, that general push towards abstracting a lot of that has helped people sort of go in and just spin up the infrastructure they need. Still need to understand what's going on and how it all connects together. But I think I think that's really helped. So, uh, like, I, I am not your guy who's going to network servers together. I can go into <laughs> AWS and push a few buttons, right? So <laughs> I think that's massively helped.
0: Yeah. As well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess, as with anything, when we're speaking about the realms of data science and artificial intelligence, there are always potential risks, right? Especially yeah. Businesses that are maybe uh, more highly regulated, or you know, risk averse, or whatever the case may be, and there's a lot of talk and horror stories that we've heard right about kind of some of the the bias things that yes. can go wrong in these projects. What what are some of the risks around that? So there's there's obviously there's there's
1: quite a few dimensions to this, and again, depending what like you said, what industry you're in, some are more prescient than others, but. I definitely see a greater appreciation of this now, which which is good. And I do think this falls into the realm of MLOps as well, because your performance is not just a uh, am I accurate or is my recall high or whatever the metric is. It's also am I serving customers in the way that's appropriate? Am I generating and creating and maintaining good relationships? And that that that's an important aspect of it as well. So to your point about um bias. For example, I think bias monitoring is such an important thing in MLOps now. There's there's really good ways of doing that now. There's kind of more standardized practice, you can the values and all these other things. But I think monitoring and trying to explain your modeling results is there's a lot more emphasis on that now, which I think it is 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 a really good thing and helps protect against some of this. I think I think as well there's an appreciation that data ethics um and kind of the data regulations we've got are an important part of what you should be considering. So GDPR is not an add-on, right? You have to bake that into the entire thing. You have to understand what the privacy implications are of the any model you're building, um, any data you're using, etc. And in, in organizations like in financial services, that's really forefront of any project you do. Um, but the, some of the risks I can see on the horizon that are quite interesting are... Using kind of some of the more advanced algorithmic techniques that we maybe don't quite understand fully in depth. So, not just it used to be like a couple of years ago, everybody was like, you can't really use deep learning in production because you can't explain the results. But now you've got these large language models and other things, which are you know tens of billions of parameters, and only Google and Amazon and Microsoft can train because it costs so much money there's real dangers with those things that they spit out training data and stuff. So like it's trained on like stuff that uh, is quite private, sensitive information. But then we say, oh, it's okay because the predictions will not match the data. But then it starts spitting out like Kyle Winterbottom works at Auburn. And you're like, that was a bit of training data. I didn't realize it would spit that out in production. Now there's a major issue because of broken GDPR. So I think I think there's things that are being done on that. Um, and I know, I know, that in the wider innovation space in NatWest and other places, we're, we're looking at things like that. But there's, there is a real danger that we we rush to use the latest algorithms without understanding how we should treat these risk, ethical, kind of general governance questions, which are so important. So I know I've spoken before about time to value and going faster and faster, right? But, but it's important you do that in a controlled way because you can have. You can, you can bankrupt yourself, reputational risk, financial risk, regulatory risk. There's, there's so many elements of this. I think that can't be ignored. And I, I, sorry, I'm still going on about this, but it's a, it's a really it's a really important thing, I think. That product mindset helps with this as well. Because when you build a product, you have to consider these. If you're feeding something in a PowerPoint to uh, sort of give to an exec, you maybe think about it a bit less um because you're like, I'm just showing bar charts. It's fine. He's not. He's not going to care what data trained it on. Almost. Yep. Someone should, by the way. But, <laughs> but if you're th- if you're building a product that's been called as an API hundred million times, or I'm running big batches that feed into uh, uh, the website that the customers use, it's just going to focus your mind a bit more on on the potential for these risks manifesting.
0: Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess she's started to creep into the realms of then how businesses and business leaders deal with, you know, the ever-changing technological landscape that we live in, right? There's always going to be yeah. something new, something innovative, something sexier than we're using today, right? Which always, that 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 shiny, glossy stuff always gets our attention, right? But as you said, there's potential risks with that that we probably don't understand well enough yet to be, to be kind of delving into feet first. How do organizations kind of deal with with that across the kind of tech and, and data analytics landscape.
1: Yeah, I think I think this is a real pain point just now. Um, because as you say, things are moving so fast, it's ridiculous. There's like every week a new tool that we're supposed to use. <laughs> and it's like there's no there's no way you can possibly do that. And I think I think it's it's important for kind of everybody to recognize that if their organization is a bit behind that that's probably a good thing <laughs> it means you're not doing what you just said just yeah. grabbing it and using it which is dangerous um i think i think however though to make sure you're scanning the horizon not missing an opportunity you need to and kind of this is nice it brings it right back to the the people question i think you need to invest in your people and give them the space to do that horizon scanning You'll maybe have in your organization strategy people and their, their job is to, is to do that kind of at, at a high level. But I think your doers, the people who are building the code and stuff, giving them the time and space to do this investigation and come to their their higher-ups and say, look, there's this really cool tool. I think it will actually change things. Or I find something that's not an old tool that we really should be using it because everybody's been using it for four years and we, we didn't know about it. Um, but, that, but that's that's a challenge. Um, that requires investment in education as well. You should be giving people really good training uh, all the time, which is a, is a big financial investment and a big time investment. Um, but I think it is so important because that's how you empower people in your organization to be to be the, the, the horizon scandals for you. And I actually yeah. think of the two, financial and time investment. Time is the harder one to justify sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's like we'll have training budgets and things like that, and it'll be easy to say, right, we'll spend X amount on these courses, we'll roll them out. Um, but then you start saying, right, well, it's actually it's a day a week for the training for four weeks now. Ah, we've got deadlines and things to do, mm-hmm. and then I think you you also maybe say it's important to allow them like you could you maybe want to do something like what Google does, you know, the the Friday off to do the, the blue sky stuff. A lot of places, if you m- make that case, you'll be kind of really pushed back on very, very hard. But I think I think you need to allow some element of that. It's maybe not a full day, but even an afternoon or something. Uh, and that, that is something we do. It's, I think that's so important because you're telling people that you I trust you to do a good job in the surrounding <laughs> time in your week, but it's important you're thinking about those next steps and what we should be bringing into the organization. Hmm. And then the doers will really appreciate whether it's a shiny tool or it actually drives benefit. Yeah. So I've, I've seen this so many times where it's like, the thing that's often the most impactful is just something that improves developer productivity by a tiny bit. So it's like, oh, I don't need to go to this form and get this and do that. If we use this and it integrates these things, I push one button. So actually I've saved 10 minutes a day by all my developer, etc., right? But that's not on oh, taking the latest ML ops tool or I'm building the latest large language model. That's just sometimes a bit more, a bit more down to the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Um. So, so I think, yeah, I think i
0: sort of answered the question. <laughs> um. So look, conscious of, of of time, Andy. Um. But where I want to finish on is, hopefully, you can give us a um a kind of successful use case of of where you know I don't know this might be one that you know of or maybe one that you've run yeah. I appreciate you can't give nuts and bolts on on the detail per se but uh, yeah just i guess does mlops work and can you prove it with a uh, with the use case basically yeah
1: um great i'm actually i'm actually going to totally go with the most recent thing in my mind which is the work we've done in that west with aws which we're now making kind of a big splash about so so we, this is all in the public domain. My boss spoke about it at AWS Summit in London. I'm speaking at AWS Summit in Berlin in a few weeks about this. Um, and we've released a series of blog posts on the AWS site. I think encu- we'll maybe link to them, encourage everybody to check out about the work we've done. But essentially, we we partnered with AWS a few months ago, a while back, uh, and we we had the task of building out our ML ops platform. So it was that central capability building thing that that I've been talking about. And through that. We've, we've, we've done kind of two things, I would say. So one, we've hooked up all the technology and we've impro- We've made sure that that's as, as good as it can be, right? And that's not taking the shiniest, latest tools, but it's saying, what well, it actually does the job and sticking them together. And doing it in a way that means as a, as a data scientist or an engineer or an ML engineer, whatever you want to call them, working in those lines of business teams, they don't have to do so much heavy lifting to get something into production. And what we're already seeing, it's kind of it's early days, but we're already pretty confident that that is such a massive reduction in time to value, that, it, that just that piece in itself was important. The other side of it we've seen um, is that it's triggered a lot of good conversations around are in process, which I mentioned earlier. And that's so easy to forget, so easy to think. That's all happens in a vacuum. You give people the latest tool, it, it all happens. But it really started is looking at ourselves and saying how how do you get these models into production in the smoothest way that still maintains appropriate risk behaviors and keeps us within within tolerance. And I think that's that's potentially going to be the, the longer lasting benefit because the platform will change, the tooling will change. But what we've recognized is that actually if by you optimize the processes around it, you you start seeing that benefit. And again, it's something we've already seen. So the first use cases on it, the people building the platform, already getting things done so much faster, I think, because that process optimization that that's triggered. So so it's sometimes it's just about being conscious that this is important. It's not necessarily the, the big complex build or doing the smartest thing. It's just being really conscious and looking at yourself and saying, where where is that value, as we said before? Mm. But I'd say that's a pretty successful use case, and that's why we're making a big splash about it.
0: Yeah, nice. Nice. Very good. Very good. Well, look, Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. As I said, when we put this out, um, we'll put the link to your book in there as well. Um, also worth noting for the audience that Andy is one of our mentors for the mentorship scheme that we've recently just launched. So um, I'm sure you'll probably have a few suitors after this, Andy. Uh, so, so, um, so yeah. But uh, look, um, oh, yeah. really appreciate you having on um and yeah um we'll look forward to speaking to you again soon that's it for this episode of driven by data the podcast i hope you enjoyed it i'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics until then please follow our mission group on social media if you've not already done so where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive and please share like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.